Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! And good morning. It is Solidarity Forever and it's uh, Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim. How are you, Kim? Good, yeah. Very happy to be up early in the morning. Yes, well, we've got in the studio uh, Robert Bollard, who is... A little bit of an expert on Gallipoli by now. It's the shadow of Gallipoli, the hidden history of Australia in World War One. And, uh, you know, last night I had a fantasy that it was going to rain and the eternal flame would be flooded out. Oh, shock horror. How dare you have dreams like that? You should be investigated. I think that's thought crime, really. <laughs> that's right. Um, well, as we were having a chat, uh, Robert, before we got on, we were actually talking about uh, your your book is really about bringing uh, Australia out of its uh, historical amnesia, uh, uh, which uh, sort of uh, depicts this notion that uh, Australia at the time of the First World War and uh, at Gallipoli, that period, was all very homogeneous, all very happy, all very king and country, and everything was going on very nicely in regards to the World War. But actually, it's uh, far far from the truth, really, isn't it? No, yeah, you're right. The, the, the war didn't... I mean, it's according to Christopher Pine, of course, who knows all about history. The war is something we should remember because it brought us all together and made us a nation. A weak solidarity, oh. Bricky team listener, when I'll have to hurry... To Goodness me, today it's all out of control. That's, Everyone's trying to interrupt was us. Was that Christopher? No. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, it, it brought Australia together. I mean, that's what we're taught at school and so on. But in, in reality, it was the most unpopular war um, up there with Vietnam. It's really... Uh, it, it's an open question as to which was more unpopular. Um, and certainly, um, it really, it tore Australia apart rather than bringing it together along lines of class predominantly, but also along the lines of uh, sectarian lines, religious lines as well. Now, you, uh, you've done uh, research into, uh, uh, quite, quite practical research into uh, the people who uh, enlisted, for example... Yes, that's more recently since the book I've been doing that um, and uh, I've been looking at, in particular, uh, I was initially looking at uh, Catholic enlistment because um, a historian, Lloyd Robson, made an observation or some study back in the 70s which purported to, 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 where he found in in the group that he was studying that there appeared to be no change in the percentage of Catholics enlisting after the events of 1916 and I found that actually there has been. Uh, in, in in a study of a similar two and a half thousand um, 
enlistees that actually the percentage of Catholics did decline significantly after 1916. Perhaps we should go back to, um, I mean, there's some quite interesting uh, realities about Australia at that particular time that comes out in your book, which which people may not remember, which mm. is that, uh, but the, the seeds of discontent that we experience now actually are from that period in a sense. But some of the things that were really important to people at the time were in fact quite you know sectarianism and this was based around catholicism irish catholic as an uh, protestant uh, uh, anglican uh, ruling class notions well you need to understand that, that what there was uh, as a perfect storm in terms of the pol- the political polarization was created by crisis and the crisis was a political crisis which is engendered first of all by the war and the, the impact of the war itself the the, the slaughter the, the the incredible casualties i mean more than one percent of the australian population were killed i mean that's and going the, to cause the crisis a, yeah, by yeah. itself and all, all then, young men yes then you have uh, feeding into that the fact that from 1916 ireland was in revolt and that when you twenty percent of Australians were Irish Catholic, this 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 was clearly in the fact that Ireland was in revolt against the British Empire, and this was a war which was understood as a war for the empire. Um, this immediately meant that not just that Irish Catholic Australians would look at that and think, well, do I really want to support the war, which is the obvious thing, but but also that they were immediately suspect, and being Irish Catholic was like being a Muslim during the War on Terror. So you've got that, and then the final. The thing that people tend not to know about was the economic impact of the war because uh, it led to a dramatic increase in um, the cost of living uh, between 1914 and 1919. The cost of living increased by about 66%, by two-thirds. And wages only increased by a third. So you, you had about a third... Uh, according to the Piddington Royal Commission, which, which they actually had a royal commission to the cost of living at the end of the war, and it concluded that to bring wages back to their 1914 levels, uh, real wages, they would have to be increased by 30%. Imagine a 30% cut in your wages. That's incredible. Is it true as well? I know the we should talk about later the 1917 strike, but there were strikes also in 1914, is that right? Uh, in 1916. I do, so the initial impact of the war was, was there actually had been a... Um, strikes had been quite high immediately before the war, but the war put a stop to that. But but partly, and most people assume it's because of patriotism, and that, that was an element, but also because there was a recession, um, which always puts an end to strikes. Um, but as the recession faded towards the end of 1915, but you were having this soaring cost of living, inevitably the dam broke and, and at the beginning of uh, starting with a strike in Broken Hill, which broke out in Jan- which was in January 1916, there was this strike wave. Throughout 1916, uh, a wave of strikes, about a million workers involved in strikes in 1916, um, mostly short, sharp and successful. And then this built up and then in 1917 you had a mass strike um, which started in Sydney but spread throughout Sydney uh, and down into Melbourne and eventually had workers in every state taking part. Goodness me. So that is quite uh, quite a different picture of what's going on. Now let's reflect on when the... Uh the conscription um, referendums were happening. That was 1915. Uh, well, uh, yes, in, in, in November 1916, I think November, uh, October, sorry, October 1916 and in December 1917. I mean, it's significant that the conscription referendum 
which uh, the first conscription referendum, the 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 strike wave peaked immediately after it. That actually, that is, it was just after the conscription referendum that the coal miners walked out and won the forty-hour week um, in 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 one of a, in a very dramatic and successful strike. So the two things go together. And women had a huge role in the anti-conscription campaign. Is that true? Um, well, there were particularly prominent um, women involved in Victorian left at the time. Um, there was an organisation uh, which wasn't um, your normal left-wing organisation. It was actually a middle-class feminist organisation which shifted dramatically to the left, uh, Vita Goldstein's um, um, Women's Political Association, um, which opposed the war. Um, but within that organisation, there was an individual... Um, uh, quite famous individual because she came from a famous family, which is Adela Pankhurst, who actually left that organisation and joined the Victorian Socialist Party. And she and Jenny Baines, another prominent member of the Victorian Socialist Party, were very prominent, particularly in 1917, um, in leading um, demonstrations of women complaining about the uh, the cost of living um, and other demonstrations later on during the, the mass strike where they went around smashing windows and uh, <laughs> and, and and rioting um, uh, on, the, on the streets which were blackened by the strike because there was a shortage of coal so it was dark and it was easy to get away with smashing windows. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, the, the, the women were prominent um, in that particular period as well. So uh, you, you were saying, for example, if we look at uh, the uh, tension, uh, the religious tension, uh, mm. uh, you would, you've just been having a look at uh, uh, the CPSU members, for example. Well, the, CP, the answers of CPSU with the Victorian... Uh, I've forgotten what it was called at the time. I think it was called but the, the, the Association. Public Service. Yeah, yeah. At the time, at the beginning of the war, it covered um, not just public servants but teachers and police as well, um, the t- Police Federation was formed during the war in 1917. Um, so they sort of split off at that point. But um, so I've been the part of my brief. I'm employed by the CPSU to look at um, all the people who en- enlisted. And yes, I I was mentioning how I've discovered that only 18 percent of the police who enlisted were Catholic. Um, and I, I I'm yet to confirm this, but certainly has been mentioned by historians in the past that a majority of the Victorian police force was was Irish Catholic. And if there was a majority, this is a, a very dramatic illustration of uh, lack of enthusiasm for the war amongst Catholic policemen. Mm. But then you went on to say something quite amusing. Well, that the, the um, uh, this is about, about the, the 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 ancestor of Asia. Well, no, that's very interesting. We will talk about that. <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, the notion that uh, you've got what is often used as the uh, police. Uh, oh, yeah, the police yeah. are used politically. Yes, well, the, the, the parallel today, as I said before, that being Catholic during the First World War was like being a Muslim during the War on Terror. Um, but with the peculiar tr- twist. Uh, that if, a, if, if our rulers today had a majority of the police force being Muslim, then you can imagine the concern that that would be. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and, there, was, and there was a major strike, policemen's strike. In 1923, yes. And that's when a ho- uh, the whole composition of the police changed. Yes, well, when people like you all... My great-grandfather, great yes. ...got sacked. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, um, and, and a number of police who'd actually served in the war got sacked as well. Um, but, yes... Um, and, and let's go back to what you were saying about ASIO. There's something else that you discovered. Well, uh, well when I, uh, I did my PhD thesis on the Great Strike of 1917 and I was trying to find, early on in the piece, I was trying to get files on the left. So I looked at, you know, to the, 
saw what the ancestors look up ASIO and then you go through in the National Archives it tells you what the predecessor organisations and I found something called the Special Intelligence Bureau which was set up in 1916 was the earliest I thought oh they must have files on the on the IWW and people like that so I I went to have a look and all I found was stuff about Irishmen that's just all they had on their files I could find was just stuff about you know suspected Sinn Féin activity. I thought, that's a bit peculiar. Later on, I did find the files on the IWW I was looking for, just in the normal police files, records. But I, the, the, a key to why this organisation was set up in 1916 uh, was revealed when I, I found a couple of their reports, again, all to do with Irishmen, um, in Billy Hughes's personal papers. And one report was about a, an employee of the Prime Minister's department a young clerk who'd been carrying on uh, a correspondence with a Fenian-minded priest and that Billy should be aware of this. And at the end of the report, it said, um, "Just it should be noted that this young man is the son of uh, of Inspector, and then they've, uh, I forget what it was, it was an Irish name, um, of the Victorian Police Force. And I suddenly realised, of course, if... The cops were Catholic, or many of the cops were Catholic, then they're not going to get them to investigate the Catholics. They needed to create a separate organisation to do their spying on suspected Fenians, suspected Sinn Feiners. Um, and they couldn't trust the cops, so that's why they created the organisation which we. But, but also, the police themselves were investigating what was considered to be the left. Oh, yeah, they were, they that we trusted schedule. to do that. They could go down to the domain and take notes of speeches, they could intercept mail, and they did all that sort of stuff. So, that normal. Ordinary spooking on the left was done by the cops, but you couldn't trust them to spook on the, on the Irish because the so sympathies were So, were the, the ASIO, they're all what my grandmother would call proddy dogs? Uh, they were, and they were actually recruited from military intelligence initially. That's so they, because they, they, they were all you know, good Protestant officers who were put in charge of it. And just to remind uh, listeners that you're listening to Solidarity Breakfast, and you, you're with Annie and Kim, and we're talking to Robert uh, Bollard about his, uh, his historical excursions into uh, World War One Australia. But let's listen to uh, Rod, what Rod Quantock says before we uh, find out more about the 1917 strike. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to... Fill in the dots, you know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, fill in the... 3CR Community Radio, you got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 8.55am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. Now, Robert Bollard, you've been studying the uh, 1917 strike and uh, I'm, I'm assuming that uh, lots of our listeners will know about the 1917 strike, but you'll know it in detail uh, I mean, there's a war going on. It's on the other side of the world. People are being killed. Uh, the uh, 
uh, it's so so um, disturbing that uh, the government has uh, banned uh, widows' weeds. You know, people aren't allowed to wear the black. You do that mm. Victorian um, thing where you dress up and mourn your dead because it's too disturbing. There's too much of it on the yeah. street. Uh, where does uh, this strike come from? Well, it, it, if you just look at the events, it's it's almost, and it's, this has been said said by people at the time and said by historians that it's almost inexplicable this strike because there was a dispute about what appears to be a very mundane work workplace issue in, admittedly, a very big workplace, the work, railway workshops in Sydney, um, which suddenly erupts into a mass strike involving a hundred thousand workers, mostly going on strike on the principle of solidarity which is something you're presumably aware of. <laughs> um, but, but simply, you know... Uh, well, it's, it's, it's very similar to today. Yeah. Um, and remaining on strike, some, in some cases... Well, in, in the case of the Melbourne Waterfront, for four months, um, in the middle of a world war. So 100,000 workers is, is a lot. It would be a lot today, but in a country of 5.5 million people, it, it, was, it was a lot. So it, it spread from the, from the railway workshops to the, first of all, to the New South Wales railways, then the then the coal mines went out, then the waterfront went out, then the Broken Hill mines went out, then the Melbourne waterfront went out, then the seamen and the seamen were on strike. You had the then you had various factories joining in, big factories like the Dunlop factory in Melbourne, the CSR factories in Melbourne and Sydney. Um, the meatworks went out in Sydney. You had carters and drivers, storemen and packers, um, young boys and girls. They're described um, employed by. Um, soap manufacturers in, 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 I think it was Collingwood, um, walking out uh, in principle because someone who was a scab delivered some coal or, 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 or something else from the waterfront and said, no, we're, we're going to walk out now. So it just this, like, it was driven from below completely. Um, it wasn't official. Uh, the only group of workers who were officially called out at any stage were the railways in New South Wales and, and actually they were the one group with a significant proportion scabbed. Um, but yeah, so it was a mass strike. Um, so you can't explain it simply by that. What you need to understand is why people were so discontented and the things I was talking about before about you know, the, the discontent with the war and with what was happening to living standards is really the, the seed for this conflagration. I wanted to ask about, because you were talking about uh, the aspect of you know, people going on strike because oh, I'm, not, I'm not handling scab mm. products, etc. That played a big role in the strike. Can you maybe describe some of the anecdotes of the particular workers who refused to handle this stuff? Well, well, my favourite actually was the coal miners in um, New South Wales, in, in I think it was Illawarra, who went on strike very early um, because before the railways had gone out, the railway workshops on strike, but the railways hadn't got on strike. But this particular group of coal miners, their coal mine was quite separate to where they lived and they had to travel by rail. And they and they met one morning and they said, if we go to if we go by rail to work, what happens if the railways go on strike and we have to return home by rail on a scab train? <laughs> we can't do that, so they went on strike. <laughs> <laughs> so preemptive strike. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that that's that gives you some idea of the uh, of the spirit. And, and in the case of um, uh, the other one was the seamen in in Sydney. The way the seamen first went on strike in Sydney. Um, there was a ship that was um, in due to to leave Sydney Harbour. Um, the owners knew that if they allowed it to be filled with cargo, 
that that would be done by scabs because the waterfront had gone on strike. So the owners, not wishing to have a strike on their hands, just said, we're, we're going to not do that. We'll just go and go somewhere and, 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 and set it off. So um, so the the seamen um, stoked up the ship, went out, and as they were starting through Sydney Harbour, um, someone called out, we're on strike, and they went back. And, and, and I found out what had happened was that the 200 members of the Seamen's Union, rank-and-file members, had marched down to Trades Hall, kidnapped their very conservative secretary, dragged him along forcibly to a meeting, which he refused to recognise, but they called anyway, and, and they voted to go on strike, and they'd sent someone down to the wharf, and they yelled out to the ship, we're on strike, and that was the point. The whole Sydney waterfront closed. The work, all the seamen walked off <laughs> on this basis. Now, this is obviously telling. I mean, it, it, it's telling us something uh, extremely interesting about uh, the similar similarities with uh, present day and the past. I mean, these these workers are actually voicing an, uh, an opinion that is uh, deeply uh, separated from a uh, a, a union. Um, uh, Union officials who are obviously supping at the table of, uh... well, some of them are. I mean, in the case of the Siemens Union, I suspect they were. Um, but and many of the union officials in this period were actually were, were actually workers. Oh right, um, okay. Because the unions are very small. Um, some of the unions that you did have, where you did have fully paid officials was with the big federal unions um, and they tended to be very conservative partly because of, because of that fact but also because they were the reason for creating a federal union like the Waterside Workers Federation which was created in 1905 was deliberately so that you could have a federal award so it was and, for and arbitration also, so it's not, mm. it's not about, it's not about uh, corruption so much as feeling that uh, things can be settled uh, in an orderly fashion yeah, in an orderly way. It, it's about the, the reality of experience of being a union official. Um, it's is the day to day sort of bargaining between employers and workers. It's not. That's right. It's not about confrontation necessarily, except at the individual level of casework it might be. But and and in this period, it very much focused on arbitration, um, on getting a nice a nice you know. The, the, Which was the, what the it was all of, about. Yeah, from that early. You know, first decade of the uh, federation where they were. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 conflicted. I mean, there, there's a famous there, there's a there was an, uh, a famous journal article uh, by um, a historian called Markey, but, uh, which actually argues that arbitration was less important than it's often understood. That the union was actually built through strikes and so on, uh, which is true. But it doesn't change the fact that in the minds of union officials, arbitration was very, very important. And and you see during the strike, you know, the Waterside Workers Federation, the federal officials are not involved early on, but then they, they get involved to try and stop the strike, mainly because they're upset, because uh, they're trying to get an award out of Higgins, and he's told them, no, I'm not going to give you an award if you misbehave. Hmm. Um, another question that I had is, how did all this striking affect the war effort? Because is it true that Australia provided a lot of the lead for the... Well, 80% of the lead came oh, from Rugged Hill. For, <laughs> you know, for I'm the refilling. guns? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to fill you full of lead. Well, you've got to get the lead from somewhere. And we, oh, that's and fascinating. I didn't Hill. know that. And it's interesting because Brogan Hill was the most radical part of the uh, labour movement back then and, and it was uh, a union that... In Broken Hill itself, the, the officials there who really were into class struggle and, in fact, were anti-war syndicalists. So um, you've got this um, 
was actually sort of semi-cynical. So actually, mostly many of them were members of the Australian Socialist Party, which was more orthodox um, Marxist organisation. But certainly, they were left-wing and they were anti-war. And the there had been a strike in 1916, which surprise, surprise, was dramatically successful because they had their chokehold on this supply line. Um, and in the 1917 strike, Broken Hill went on strike again. Now, the government had prepared for this eventuality by stockpiling lead in large quantities. The lead was taken from Broken Hill smelter to Port Pirie. Now, Port Pirie smelter was a very conservative workforce and they didn't go on strike. But the wharfies at Port Pirie did. They refused, well, they refused to unload... Um, coal that came in from Sydney because it was scab coal and the smelter needed the coal to refine the lead um, and I found in the in Billy Hughes's papers um, a report right at the beginning of the, of the strike you know even before the Wharfies had gone on strike in Sydney or anywhere else um, he, he had a conference straight away with the BHP and he said what's the situation with lead how are you at Port Pirie and they said we've got 11 days supply so it was eight days after that that the coal the next shipment of coal came to Port Pirie and the Wolfies refused to unload it and all hell broke loose. Um, the, uh, the, the leadership of the Warsaw Workers' Federation threatened to expel their, their, their Port Pirie members. Um, the Billy Hughes declared Port Pirie a military zone um, and tried to arrange to get the coal unloaded in Port Augusta and sent by rail, um, but it took over a week to do it. So it, it's a wonder that the... the, the, the Refinery, which was supplying the Western Front with its central metal component for the war. And this is a war that was won by artillery. The yeah. reason the Allies won the war was because they had more artillery in the yeah, end. Yeah. I mean, and so this was absolutely it was crucial. A real blood and guts war. And this strike threatened that. Uh, it actually, you know. Brought about the possibility of, I mean, you know, it's hard to imagine they would have succeeded. Eventually, the military would have done something to ensure the supply. But yeah, it, it actually threatened the supply of lead. Well, dare I say it? Dare I say it? Because it was an imperialist war. It's much of a muchness, really. Who won? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, th- th- of course. So, I mean, it was a, it was a war over. Um, well. That's a, that's another question. Well, that's ask another anyone, question. What was this war over? What was <laughs> I think it was some from Blackadder, some bloke called Archie Duke shot an ostrich. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, we we've got to uh, say goodbye to you now. We've come to the end of our time on Solidarity Breakfast for talking about uh, ANZAC uh, and uh, the uh, shadow on Australian history. That's the myopia of the past. Indeed, and so much so for you know. All that rubbish about being united in 1917. Yeah. Yeah, well, if you want to know more about it, you should go out and get Robert Bollard's book, In the Shadow of Gallipoli, The Hidden History of Australia in World War I. Available yeah. at the War Memorial, I discovered. Oh, wow. <laughs> really? And it's published by New South Publishing. So uh, just get out there and have a look at the uh, real stuff. Uh, coming up next is uh, Rank and File. And, uh, but before we do, let's... Uh, Let's hear an announcement. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses' Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. 
We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR, radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. Workers, united, will never be defeated. May Day Celebrations 2015. International Workers' Day. May Day Film Night, Tuesday, 6.30pm, 28th of April. Democratic Workers League, 583 High Street, Norcos. Wreath laying at the 8-hour monument on Thursday the 30th of April at 5pm. Victoria Parade, adjacent to Trades Hall. The May Day Multicultural Event, Thursday the 30th of April at 6.30pm, Vela Union, Trades Hall. The May Day March, Sunday 3rd of May, assembling at 1pm on the corner of Victoria and Russell Streets, opposite Trades Hall. The May Day Concert, Sunday 3rd of May, is straight after the march on a speaker's platform. Everyone, welcome. Workers, united, will never be defeated. El pueblo, unido, jamás será vencido. Friends of the Earth. You know who we are. Almost 40 years of campaigning for environmental and social justice. But the issues just keep getting bigger instead of going away. Coal seam gas mining and the destruction of vital farmland. Unsustainable logging practices. Backward-looking wind energy policy. Chemicals in our drinking water. CO2 in the atmosphere reaching record levels unthinkable 10 years ago. Now, more than ever, Friends of the Earth needs your financial help. The big ask is for your contribution so that we can keep on asking the big questions. Go to www.melbourne.foe.org.au Make a contribution, become a member. Friends of the Earth, an active voice for social justice and a cleaner, greener, more sustainable planet. On today's edition of Rank and File Radio, we will cover International Workers' Memorial Day, which we commemorate on April 28 each year. And on that date, we remember those that attended work yet never returned home. A commemoration service to remember those workers that have been killed on the job will be held on the morning of April 28th. And to discuss that event and workplace safety, the Secretary of Victorian Trades Hall Council, Luke Hilakari, joins me on the line for this morning's uh, program of Rank and File Radio. Okay, and welcome to the program, Luke, where we will uh, discuss International Workers uh, Memorial Day. So welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Marcus. No worries. Okay, so fatalities in the workplace uh, continue to be overrepresented in statistics. How many uh, workers were killed uh, nationwide in Australia last year and in this state of Victoria? So if we look at the numbers for last year. So in Victoria, um, over 20 workers died. Okay. Um, these are unnecessary, preventable deaths where we should be out there campaigning around to make sure that this doesn't happen. Um, across Australia to date, we've had 44 deaths, um, and this is across many industries, but there is a leaning towards industries like construction, manufacturing, agriculture. These industries seem to lead the way. Um, and it's where workers need to be organising to make sure that this type of thing doesn't happen. OK, and the International Labour Organisation statistics say that uh, worldwide 2.34 million people are killed on the job each year, that uh, workers that go to work 
each day yet never return home and they're, they're avoidable. Um, 100% of deaths at the workplace avoidable, would you say, Luke? Every single death is avoidable and every worker should be able to come home to his and hers, their family, and they should come home in the way that they left home, you know, happy, safe and secure. Uh, now, you see these outrageous death numbers across the world and that's because companies are putting profit before safety they take shortcuts and workers die. Where people are members of unions, these are good, organised sites where people are trained in des- about designated work groups where we have OH&S reps who look out for incidences you know, and problems across the workplace and they act to make them safe. Um, and that's why it's so important that people join their unions because union sites are far more safer than ununionised sites. You know, unions have been doing this for a long time, and the work that we do saves lives. And I think there's evidence of that in Victoria with uh, the recent events of uh, that, that saw the CFMEU cop hefty fines uh, trying to organise uh, workers on the Grolo sites, uh, trying to have union-elected safety reps on those sites, which they did not. And, of course, we saw fatalities, which we saw the union uh, find an outrageous sum of money for trying to stand up for health and safety while that company... Uh, copped a very lenient fine when there were uh, lives lost on a couple of projects. It's quite, quite outrageous what you know these conservatives and big businesses try to do. So you know they'll complain. You know that's outrageous that we stand up for people's wages and conditions, and yet when a worker dies, there is silence. There is silence from conservative governments. You didn't see one conservative MP go out and condemn Grolo or any other boss about workers' deaths. Complete silence. But yet, you know, when we stand up for our working conditions and rights, apparently then we're outrageous. So, you know, we know what's really going on about here, uh, and it's all about people putting profit before safety. Uh, And we've seen some changes in Victoria, some welcome changes in Victoria. WorkSafe is back. That is is our organisation that's about protecting workers. Um, And we're looking for changes, so we'll be talking to the state government about changes that we need to see to make sure that inspectors know what they're looking at when they go out and site, that they could work in units that are specialised about specific industries. Um, we've seen the head of WorkSafe leave and the chair of WorkSafe leave, um, and that's because you know there are some problems in Victoria about safety, and it's, it's time that safety was, again, square on the agenda because workers should feel like when they leave home, they go to work, they do their job, and they should come home in the way they left, happy and safe and secure. Are the occupational health and safety laws in this country and in this state of Victoria are sufficient? I mean, do we need to see the introduction of industrial corporate manslaughter where individual company directors, for instance, are held accountable when there is deaths on the workplace? Absolutely, Marcus. Absolutely. You're dead right. We've got laws like this that are you know, around New South Wales, and you know, we're falling behind. There's some areas where we do particularly well, but you know it's time that you know company bosses and directors are held responsible for what happens to their workers on site, um, and we should also extend that to looking at the entire supply chain of how you know these products get to our shores or are made here, and to make sure that all along this all along that chain to the end consumer, that the workers who help deliver, make, and manufacture are kept safe in their workplace. So we've got a long way to go. Um, you know, there's other issues out there that you might want to talk about at some stage and, you know, we maybe should spend a program on it properly about things like asbestos. 
Um, you know, we, you know, this is often an issue that can be kicked around between WorkSafe and the EPA. Yep. You know, we need to think about how we take responsibility for asbestos and the disease that lives out there in our community that is often hidden. Um, and we, a lot of people don't know about this type of, you know, this type of disease that's floating around. Um, you know, we've got a lot of work to do. So um, this is a good first step, some reforms that we're seeing at WorkSafe. But it's our job as unionists to organise around these issues and to make sure that we keep you know, our fellow workers safe at work and we make sure that it's the responsibility of the boss to make that happen. And that's right, yeah, more than, more than 2 million workers uh, worldwide die from uh, work-related uh, diseases. Has, hazardous substances kill 440-odd thousand people annually and uh, asbestos, as you mentioned before, 100 uh, workers' lives are lost each year through that um, substance. And if you think of Workers' Memorial Day, we can also extend that thinking about injuries. So it was, you know, over 20,000 claims that went through WorkSafe about, you know, people that were injured at work. Um, you know, that takes a big hit on the family too, and yet there was only 109 prosecutions in this state. So somewhere between those over 20,000 and 109, there's a problem there. Um, and that's what we saw under this Conservative government where they were trying to wind that type of stuff back. Well, it's time that we wind it up, start organising and make safety the responsibility of bosses. And as we speak, unions are under attack from this Conservative government once more through the uh, Royal Commission, the trade unions. I mean, I don't see the Abbott government holding any inquiry into companies that kill or maim workers on the job. And then we have the situation of the fly-in, fly-out workers. Uh, again, uh, numerous fly-in, fly-out workers having uh, taken their own lives through those pressures associated with that uh, form of employment. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been very difficult. Um, so we have a number of different type of visa situations in a, Australia where um, you know, a number of workers are being exploited um, at a time when we've got unemployment at particularly high levels. You know, especially if you look around you know, places across regional Victoria where you get unemployment rates creeping between 14 and 25%. You know, there's a lot of people looking for work uh, and we need to be able to prioritise you know, locals getting those jobs and, you know, we're talking a little bit about safety today, but safe and secure. So we want to make sure they're permanent jobs too. Um, we're not seeing any inquiries from the federal government that are looking about how we can make sure that, you know, Australians have good, solid work and that those that come here in areas where they're needed, that they're not exploited when they do so. So you don't hear ombudsmen's or any of those type of investigations into that space. You know, apparently companies are allowed to run amok. And that's what we've been seeing. Um, that's been to the detriment of overseas workers and to local workers as well. OK, and coming up on Tuesday, April 28, 2015, as with every year, we remember those that have lost their lives through workplace incidences and illnesses, those that went to work yet never returned home, and the Melbourne commemoration will take place on the morning of April 28. What are the details of the International Workers Memorial Day service in Melbourne, Luke? Yeah, 10.30 at Trades Hall. We're inviting everyone to come on down. Um, this year's theme is Stand for Safety, and, you know, if you're looking, if you can't make it down there, what we're asking you to do is if you can get a pair of boots, put it out the front of your house, you can take a photo, show some solidarity on Twitter or Facebook, hashtag it Stand for Safety, um, or otherwise, come down and join us. Um, there'll be a short sort of ceremony and, you know, there'll be a little bit of mourning and a moment of silence. And it should go for about 45 minutes and then we'll lay some flowers and wreaths and people are welcome to lay the flowers that we bring or you're welcome to bring your own wreath too. But 
this is a very important time for the movement that we reflect and remember what's happened and then we organise to do better. Okay, and this uh, online campaign, no doubt inspired by the social media tributes that millions of Australians uh, participated in following the death of the Australian uh, cricketer Philip Hughes, which you could also say was a death that was a result of a workplace uh, injury. Yeah, it was very sad, very sad for all Australians. And, um, you know, I think that moment sort of brought it home a little bit to everybody about... um, you know, how difficult and surprising some of these things can be. Um, and then you think about your own workplace and, you know, we all work in different sort of environments and there's different ways to make sure that uh, we can be safe and what can the boss do to make sure your place is safe at work. And, you know, from time to time that means that we're going to have to unite together as a group of workers and we're going to have to stand up and speak up. And so, you know, if out of these moments of reflection and this Memorial Day that we can... You know, better organised, better campaign, that's a good thing. Because, you know, 20 deaths in Victoria is 20 deaths far too many, and it's our job as organisers to hold these bosses to account. And for those workers unable to make it to Tuesday's memorial service, uh, what could they do in their own workplace to campaign? Yeah, they can meet with their, absolutely, they can meet with their group of workers and just hold a moment's reflection on that day. Um, around 11 o'clock would be terrific, a minute's silence. Um, and they can also... Go online to weareunion.org.au. They can share um, you know, information with their friends and family about what we do. And also, you know, if you are an OHS rep, you know, go to our website, get involved. If it's been a while since you've done a refresher course, come back to Trades Hall. Get that refresher course done because there's always more we can learn about keeping you know, the employers accountable for safety on site. And as you said, an organised workplace, a unionised workplace with union elected uh, safety reps on the job, there is evidence to suggest that they are safer work sites for, for all uh, workers. Brother, that is the way to go. If you're not part of a union, you need to join your union. If you don't have an OHS rep, you need to talk to your union about having a designated work group and get that OHS rep going. Okay, and we should note that it was in Melbourne though, where Australia's worst industrial disaster occurred on the construction project of the Westgate Bridge when 35 uh, young men were killed on the morning of uh, October 15, 1970. Again, on that day, the workers pointed out to the bosses that there was uh, something wrong. Mm. Uh, and you should also think about um, uh, on Friday, so you know, the day we're actually taping this thing, uh, also Rana Plaza Memorial is today as well another tragic workplace disaster where, again, the workers pointed out that the building was crumbling, they sought to leave, and the bosses forced them back in. That's right, 1,100 workers uh, killed on that fateful day two years ago. So uh, thanks for joining me this morning, Luke, on Rank and File Radio, where we've discussed safety in the workplace and International Workers Memorial Day. Thank you for having me, and thank you to your listeners. Thank you. On last week's edition of Rank and File Radio, Davy Thomason spoke of the successful motion that he had passed by the CFMEU nationally that guaranteed that no workers would cross picket lines set up to protect uh, the communities that the Abbott government wishes to close down. On the program, Davy thanked the many people that had supported him in the struggle. Davy would also like to acknowledge the late Bill Della, Robbie Thorpe, Viv Marlow and Sharon Firebrace. That is all we have time for on Rank and File Radio. On Community Radio 3CR 855 AM this week, I've been the presenter of the program, Marcus Harrington. 
you can tune in to Rank and File Radio during the Solidarity Breakfast time slot on 3CR every Saturday morning at 8 o'clock a.m. And that was the marvellous Marcus Harrington. As we said, you're back in the studio with Annie and Kim. And we've got a few announcements before uh, Kevin Healy tells us about the week that was. Uh, you know, it's April the 25th and uh, there's a fundraiser today. There's a, uh, at 8pm it is. It's uh, at Bella Union Trades Hall, Ligon Street, Carlton South. And it's for the Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance. In support of war, a collective of young Aboriginal people committed to the cause of decolonisation and the philosophy of Aboriginal nationalism, resistance and revival. There will be performances by Brett Lee Music, the Monica Wayman Band and DJ Sledge. Spoken word performances and guest speakers will also be there and that's at 8pm, Bella Union, as Trades Hall and it costs $10. Yes, and there's also, uh, as people may know, on May 1st, there's the next rally against the closure of Aboriginal communities, and that'll be four o'clock at the town hall. Just keep an eye on the Facebook page in case it uh, moves, but I'm sure everyone's probably got that down in their calendar, but do come along. Yeah, that's exactly right. Now, also remember that uh, these machines cut razor wire 2015, Fifth annual music fundraiser for the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre performances by Jeff Lang, Kavisha Masala, Les Thomas Band, Little Foot Duo and more. It's 6pm, Ding Dong Lounge, that's tomorrow night, Sunday, April the 26th. The Ding Dong Lounge is the at 18 Market Lane in the city. So... Uh, if you want to do your good works, you really should be going off to that event tomorrow night. And the other issue we have that I'm not sure if many people have heard of, but the university university administration at Melbourne University wants to demolish Union House, which is the place where the union resides, but also the only place where students can congregate without having to buy something. The university wants to replace Union House with high-rise apartments, which they'll no doubt charge a fortune for rich students to live right in the centre of campus. But there is a... Hopefully there'll be an ongoing campaign against that. But on April 28th, 1pm Tuesday, in which begins in Southcourt, there's a radical walking tour of the Union House because it has a very radical history including hiding draft dodgers during the Vietnam War in the roofs of Union House. But it's also an organising hub for the radical student movement during those eras. So if you are around Melbourne University on Tuesday at one o'clock, I would encourage you to go to that. Yeah, extraordinary stuff. I find that absolutely shocking, the thought that uh, they would try to remove the cultural hub of Melbourne University right at the time where they're trying to double enrolments. So they just want students to go around and be consumers. That's what they want. Yeah, and I, I guess also uh, it leads to the impression that, uh, ideologically speaking, it's uh, similar to the way that uh, uh, the First World War is being repackaged. Uh, there's this whole notion that the only uh, value is money and uh, all other anybody who has any other view in life is at a step. 
that, uh, in fact, they probably should be in a mental institution. Exactly. The university provides services. The union is meant to provide services which you pay for instead of actually the union representing students. That's exactly right. And that brings into uh, uh, the uh, spotlight something that's going on at Sydney University at the moment. I don't know if you've uh, picked up on this, but uh, there was a stoush around uh, an academic there and a couple of students who were involved in a... uh, a uh, protest outside a uh, a meeting uh, a pub uh, it was a public meeting o- organized by a private organization of uh, Zionists it mm. was a Zionist meeting and on campus they'd rented a room I think and it was a public meeting with suits and people of that sort and uh, it was found out by the people who uh, uh, have an organization that uh, promotes Palestinian um, perspective. Students for Palestine. Palestine, and they did a uh, protest outside uh, this uh, uh, meeting, which has now blown into a uh, attack on the academic and a uh, uh, approach. Uh, they're approaching this notion of actually uh, removing his tender, tenure, and uh, also. Uh, a sort of a silencing process on the uh, students of uh, Palestine, for uh, Palestine. Yes, and it's so incredibly hypocritical because I th- believe it was the same uh, university or university in Sydney that refused to have an anti-war meeting because the Reclaim Australia thugs said that they were going to protest this meeting and so the university administration cancelled it, but they're happy to have... Zionists on campus, and also the uh, issue of the BDS. Uh, they that they are also the university that uh, attacked various academics who supported the BDS, which is uh, you know all pretty interesting stuff. So that's a watching brief as well. Anyway, uh, we're now going to move on to uh, Kevin, and this is the week that was. A weak solidarity brekkie team listener, and I'll have to hurry through this because I'm busily clearing out my kitchen drawers before it's too late and also feeling very unwell. No idea what's causing it. Don't want to lower the tone and hope you're not eating breakfast, listener, but every time I've picked up a paper this week or turned on the telly news, I, I start to vomit. It, it's spontaneous. Very worrying. So worrying I had this CAT scan and other tests, and I think it might be something called... Anzacitis, whatever that is, and could last another couple of weeks, they reckon. Bloody nuisance, but fighting through all that, busily clearing out my kitchen drawers, I'd advise you to do same, clearing the house of anything sharp, and especially that drawer of knives in the kitchen, because the front door could be knocked down at any time, and these paramilitary... Sorry, our defenders of our freedoms could storm through the house and cart me away. After a little bit of necessary biff and kick and that sort of thing, normal police procedure, holding me for two years or whatever without charge because possessing knives in the house is clearly a terrorist threat. As Deputy Big Copper Shane put on a concerned face told us, but despite this terrorist threat, this federal cop, Deputy Supremo Neil Gofear again, said... At this stage, we have no information, you know, like, like, that it was a planned, you know, like, beheading. Phew. Still, it's important to throw that line into the fear equation, and we must presume the people charged after all that face caught on the heinous offence of having knives in the house. Thus, I'm taking no risks whatever. They're all out the door. 
thank goodness and no coincidence whatever, of course, however alert but not alarmed protectors uncovered this horrendous terrorist threat just before we celebrate the great event that forged our values, made us what we are. How dare these terrorists threaten violence on the very day when we celebrate a failed invasion when we landed at the wrong spot on the other side of the planet. How dare they threaten violence on the great day when we celebrate trained killing, the glorious trained killed, the glorious dead. What a pity the anti-terrorist lot weren't as vigilant a hundred years ago. They, they could have stopped that terrorism, stopped the slaughter, by preventing the working class cannon fodder from leaving the country in defence of and to bolster the coppers of their corporate masters. One of the causes of my illness has been the daily Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin dose of dear little children telling us great-grand-uncle whatever died for his corporate masters and little what's-her-and-his-name appreciates what they, including great-grand-uncle, did for us. Well, big supremo tiny a bit more for the bosses himself appreciates what they did for us and tells us we must all appreciate what they did for us. And it's true, listener, as long as we believe that Boers or Turks or Malaysians or Koreans or Vietnamese or Afghans or Iraqis or anyone else we've invaded across the planet on the orders of our contemporary colonial economic masters, and they've all been men, true blue Aussie bouncing along on the coattails of imperialism, unless we believe we would have been overrun by all those people who would now be running this country, stealing it off the lot who stole it in 1788, then it does does beg the question, what did they do for us? Answers in one word or less to the week that was Care3CR. Big philosophical differences developing between the caring business class and socialist parties over superannuation and negative gearing handouts to the rich. Uh, the Socialist Party, its man of principal economic guru Chris Bowen to Capital declared, will quite possibly, uh, well maybe, uh, well, perhaps, do something about handouts to the rich through super and negative gearing, but let me assure those ripping off, we will not stop them ripping off. Imagine the terror over the cognac and lobster down at the Melbourne Club. The only more frightening prospect I can think of, bonkers, is seeing a woman come through the door. On the other hand, the ideological opposite caring business class party has promised it will not touch handouts to the rich. How can we lift the poor and slothful bludgers out of their poverty if we don't make the rich richer so they can lift the poor out of the gutters, which, may we point out, they mostly utilise without paying a cent in rent? That's a far more sensible fare to all egalitarian policy bonkers. Well, they'll be lifted out. <laughs> exactly. Lovers of, those of us who respect our laws, which allow the smooth working of society, including the smooth working of all equal before the law, no such thing as class struggle industrial relations system, will welcome the recommendation by the Her Most Gracious Majesties Get the Building Union's Kanga Mission Crown Prosecutor Jeremy Stolger writes that rogue union officials should face $200,000 fines and be disqualified from holding office. The latter because Jeremy points out sensibly the union could just pay the bloody fine and the rogue official could continue to be a rogue official. Rogue action like demanding safety or complaining about workers being killed and injured. 
Now, I raise this because the story made P1 Thursday, True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review. Union crooks face 200,000 fines bans. The Wapping said, dodgy union heads in the crosshairs. And in a separate story, union heavies, etc. Don't crooks, dodgy heavies, describe evil unions so appropriately. Just the same day, a transport worker awarded six grand for wrongful dismissal, caring employer described as company director. Several stories about the bank's financial advice are odd mistakes. They're supremos expressing remorse. We knew nothing about it. The buck doesn't stop here. A mob who put up those want-longer-lasting sex billboards and charging about four and a half grand to dud desperates forced to repay customers because the treatment was predictably useless. But no criminal charges or fines. Well, did I say a mob? The company, the report said, and the founder, it described Jack Evasion Man, who incidentally, when the proverbial first hit the fan, closed the company and reopened next day under a new name. That highly respected construction giant Leighton's has changed its name because Leighton's was on the nose after all these scandals and corruption. In other words, the usual daily array of responsible corporate supremos and caring businesses slapped over the wrist for some minor offence like ripping off trillions, but nowhere do pejoratives like crooks, dodgy or heavies appear because these are respectable people and those pejoratives are reserved for evil unions and the respectable corporate lawbreakers inadvertently breaking the law attract a slap over the wrist because they have already suffered. Their reputation has been eroded by being sprung. Punishment enough. You've gone down in my estimation, Jenkins. How were you silly enough to get sprung? Whereas dodgy, crook union heavies have no reputation to lose, so they must suffer the full force of the 200 grand and be cast into the fires of unemployment. Oh, and Jeremy and his great mate, his honour the Royal Commissioner, Mr Justice Haydown with unions, are planning to investigate the link between evil union officials and the Socialist Party. And obviously, therefore, you'll also look at the relationship between the great responsible corporate boardrooms and both major parties. Of course not. Our role is to smash, sorry, investigate anti-social behaviour, help maintain a smooth, socially cohesive society. To maintain just that, our old mate Twitty's company, Fortis You Pay Us, says the government has a responsibility to help it out over the fall in iron ore prices, which has made life a bit ordinary for poor old Twitty and Fortis You Pay Us. Responsibility because, quote, the material in question is a state-owned resource. There is an absolute issue here of public interest. Oh, so Twitty's twigged the stuff they're digging up belongs to the people. Just trying to recall, listener, Twitty making that point during the mining resource super-duper obscene profits tax debate as he stood on the platform screaming his principal position alongside his great mate Gina. When you find the quote, do let us know. As we celebrate war, we must also, we must, uh, as we must, let us not celebrate non-war as we must. Even though those dodgy union-heavy crooks try to maintain the oh-so-dated myth of class war. 
there are spoil sports trying to undermine the celebration of great real war by raising issues like yesterday was the second anniversary of the Rana Plaza factory collapse in Bangladesh which murdered, sorry, accidentally killed 1,100 workers, mostly young, expendable women. For God's sake, there's plenty more of them. And if evil unions didn't interfere here through crippling demands like wages and conditions, our workers could make the clothes here for the great responsible outlets that sell the clothes here. We don't hear those responsible suggesting this class war, do we? They know we're all equal, like those Bangladesh women. All equal. Although finally, this headline in yesterday's True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review, Anzac Day may have peaked, says historian. Doubt it, but bloody hope so. Good morning. And that was a bit of Eric Bogle and No Man's Land. So sweet, Kim. Yeah, bittersweet. Bittersweet. Uh, we're uh, on um, Solidarity Breakfast and in our studio, not quite in our studio, but by phone, we've got the wonderful Sam Castro, who's in Canberra. Uh, hello, hello, Sam. How are you? Hey, Annie. I'm good. Yeah. How are you? I'm okay. Is Hi, it ra- Sam. It's nice to meet you. This- Hi. Thank you. Uh, is it raining there? Uh, no, it was raining when we got here on Wednesday. Yeah. Uh, it's just been extremely cold overnight and then those really crisp, sunny Canberra mornings. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, we've heard it's going to be pretty cold today, so we're all rugging up, that's for sure. Yeah, and uh, and the reason for why we're talking to you is because you guys are up in Canberra for the next uh, Peace Convergence and uh, mm-hmm. you've been part of uh, a whole lot of stuff that's been leading up to Lest We Forget the Frontier Anzac Day March. Can you tell us about yes. the uh, things that have been going on in Canberra over the last week? Oh, wow. Um, a great deal of Anzac and um, war propaganda is definitely centred around Canberra. I noticed driving around yesterday. Um, but here at the 10 Embassy, we're totally focused on um, peace and on uh, making sure that the frontier wars are recognised today. So the Peace Convergence is about bringing together people at the 10 Embassy and uh, our focus is always around wars. So uh, yesterday we did Waging Peace, which has become an annual event, Waging Peace and Resisting War. And that's where we uh, take off in a convoy and go and uh, speak out and protest at various uh, organisations or corporations that we think are worthy uh, of being identified in Canberra. And it's fascinating, um, isn't it, that Canberra gives you such a cornucopia of uh, opportunity to... Uh... Oh, there are sovereign bastards everywhere you turn. <laughs> I mean, it's meant to be this sleepy town, but there's, you know, scumbags sleeping, I think. Yeah. Tell us where you went. Excuse that noise in the background. I don't know if you can hear that. That's the clanging for breakfast. (laughs) Um, (laughs) We're going to keep you just for a little bit longer, mate. Yeah, no, that's fine. That's fine. Uh, Yeah, look, there are so many uh, corporations involved in the military-industrial surveillance complex in this town. It's extraordinary. Uh, Yesterday, we decided we wanted to focus very much on the cost of war, Um, so we went to the U.S. Embassy, of course. Uh, this empire, you know, with a thousand bases, is waging endless uh, war across across the planet, and Australia as an ally is jumping straight in bed with them. And then we went to the Israeli Embassy. This time they had a lot more police and tried to prevent us from walking up to the actual embassy again. And, and once again, like we did last year, we... Uh, 
I don't know, we just walk straight through them. They're not very good at blockading. We we were joking that maybe we could uh, subcontract ourselves out to the AFP and teach them some better blockading tactics <laughs> for when they're trying to stop police and then use that money against them. So, um, yeah, so we went to Israel, of course, over uh, Palestine and the massive amount of state-owned weaponry uh, corporations that they're involved in, particularly Albert, who, Annie, you know, has been a pet focus of ours. Yes. And then we went to Lockheed Martin, uh, the company that's getting 24 billion tax da- taxpayers' dollars uh, while we're shutting down remote communities and claiming we can't afford to educate and provide health to our people. So we had a giant lemon and a giant banner and... They got very scared and locked their front doors, so we had to glue their Sovereign Bastards Award to their door. So what do these um, cowards do? Oh, Lockheed Martin is the biggest arms manufacturer on the planet. Uh, any war that you can think of that's waging, there's probably a Lockheed Martin component. Uh, the most obvious thing, I guess, that I can point to your listeners uh, today is Lockheed Martin makes all of the missiles that are dropped on Palestine, on Gaza. Um and clearly a lot of the weapons that are in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, so they uh, did a deal with the Australian government to make a fighter pilot. F-35 still hasn't gotten off the ground. From all accounts, all over the world, it's a dud. People are trying to pull out of contracts with them on this F-35, but Australia just keeps forging ahead because we're um, Australia. Because Team <laughs> Australia, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Go Team Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. and then the last um, entity that we went to was a very symbolic entity. Um, oh, and I might just add that we uh, travelled this whole distance with two Aboriginal elders with us, um, and they led the way um, going up to every location. At the US, they didn't want us st- standing on the grass because it apparently belongs to the US. Yes. Um, they asked me as the police liaison to tell people to move on. I said, I'm not going to tell Aboriginal elders to move off their land. Would you like to do it, officer? And he looked at me and then he went, no, you can stay. Uh, and then the same at the Israeli embassy, we had the elders clapping sticks as we went up the road with the women behind them and then the men behind them. Um, and it was just it's just been amazing the way they have supported our attempt to raise awareness around the kind of murdering entities that are operating in our capital. Uh, And again, they did this at the last location, which was BAE. And at BAE, we took it up a notch and staged a sit-in and had our lunch inside BAE's foyer. Um, It's a very nice foyer. It's large and spacious for banners and things. Of course Um, it is. Of course it is. We did take a sovereign bathroom. Uh, just before you go on further, it isn't. I was fascinated the other day. I was walking past one of those big buildings. They have these huge foyers for nothing. They're to intimidate people, are they? That must be what they're for. But they're a waste yeah, of a lot, aren't they? They're a waste. It is just a waste of space. You're right. It's quite extraordinary. But then, hey, it's good for when protesters arrive. Well, that's exactly right. You all that's have what they're for. Just it. Yeah, that's, that's what it's what for. They're, for. they're to bring the people in, bring the people in to discuss things. But, but of course, um, BAE is, mom, this is really important, isn't it? This is the kicker, yeah, what you have to say about this yeah. particular group of people. Oh, they're in Melbourne too. Yeah. They are in Melbourne too. They're, they're conveniently located in lots of cities for people to protest. <laughs> um, <so feel> free. <laughs> like McDonald's. <Yeah>. Convenient <laughs> protesting. Yeah. So feel free to pick up the mantle and, and run to them. Uh, BAE, in its 
previous name. So it's the same company. It's just gone through these incarnations of changing its name uh, and its structure over the years. Uh, it used to be called Vickers. Uh, is an English company. Uh, and basically, BAE, just to cut it short for you, um, makes a particular component of weaponry that was sold to the Turks, used by the gunners to kill the soldiers at Gallipoli. So a British company that at one point was fully nationalised and then returned to privatisation, uh, a British company with part nationalisation sold weapons to the Turks who then shot the Australians, which, you know, bloody, bloody pom. Hey, that's amazing. That's and I bet they're Could all patriots now. Oh, I bet they are. So BAE has a long history of selling weapons to either side, and that's what we find most offensive about them. Um, the War Memorial here in Canberra recently opened up a sponsorship room that has BAE on the wall. Now, BAE helped kill some of the people who were named on that wall, <laughs> you know, and not just at Gallipoli, but any war you can think oh, of going on sake. right now, they're selling to both sides, which is really what we wanted to expose. You know, war is a racket. War is about profiteering. And, you know, if these companies weren't making billions of dollars, would there be so many wars? Um, we certainly don't think they should be able to make such massive profits out of making machines a death. Uh, so, yes, so BAE was our last one. They wouldn't come and talk to us. They wouldn't take us off of us as a board, so we slipped it under the door for them. It'll be so there modest. when they come in. <laughs> you know, we did go to the trouble to get them printed out. <laughs> Just, <laughs> anyway, so um, that was the end of the waging peace component of the peace convergence. Uh, around camp, all week long, there's been amazing storytelling coming on, uh, going on from elders, academics, uh, historians, discussing the massacres and the genocide that took place during the frontier wars, which, you know, um, was a very brutal occupation of this land, uh, and there was resistance, as we know. So uh, it's been a great opportunity for local people as well as people at the camp to sit and listen. For example, um, yesterday there was a discussion around mass poisoning that occurred in one of the genocides. Mm. Um, and then last night, um, no, sorry, the night before, they showed a film that told the whole history, political history of the tent embassy. Oh, great. Uh, and the night before that, they did Waging Peace, which is the documentary Bradbury made from our convergence last year, who, by the way, has just rocked up here. I just saw his white head and a camera walk past. <laughs> um, <laughs> you never escape. He, there was also... A, I know. I'm going to hide. He's going to stick a camera in my face, <laughs> I'm sure. No, there's also... A, um, a, was it Dr. Bottoms? Is his name Bottoms? The fellow who did Him? a... Yeah. Yeah, about uh, yes. the uh, documentary about uh, Queensland. Yes, yes, he was down here. He gave... Oh, Dr. Um, Tim Bottoms. Great... That's it. Yeah, uh, Frontier Killing Times. God. Yes, and actually, I've got to say, he's been here the whole time and hanging out with us. He's been awesome. He's been coming every day. Um, and not only telling his knowledge, but, but gathering a lot of knowledge from... Um, the First Nations and also from the other peace activists that have come from, you know, we have elders and activists here from Alice Springs, the Northern Territory, Brisbane, WA. Uh, it's it's really beautiful. It's not quite as large as last year, but it's more diverse, yeah. I guess I would say, yeah. uh, which is always a good sign to see fresh faces coming in. And last night we had the peace vigil with the lanterns, uh, the lament for peace and for the mothers um, grieving their children dying at war. Uh, it starts up on the Women's Mountain here in Canberra and works its way down to the War Memorial. 
and they've held an overnight vigil with the lanterns to the dawn service. And now the rest of us that came back early are up and preparing for the main event, which is, of course, every uh, year for the last five years, we have been uh, tacking on to the end of the Anzac march with frontier wars and the genocide um, statistics and, and locations. And this is an attempt, of course, to get the Australian government and the war memorial to recognise that there was resistance and wars that took place in the occupation of Australia. Uh, oh, and just, every year just they stopped... Just to let uh, our listeners know that they're on Solidarity Breakfast and we're talking to uh, Sam Castro, who is in Canberra at this moment preparing for the, lest we forget, the Frontier Anzac Day March. So every year, what do they do? So for the last five years, every year, all of the representatives of the First Nations um, wait down on the War Memorial Drive. I'm sorry, I'm not from Canberra. I, I apologise, I don't know what it's called, that road. Yeah, but yeah, the main but, road that yeah. goes up to the War Memorial. And as the march comes past with all the soldiers from all the different locations, including Turkish soldiers, uh, the Frontiers War mobs uh, tack on to the end. But every year, just before we get to the official soil of the War Memorial, they put up a police line and stop us from entering uh, with the rest of the march because they will not recognise the frontier wars. They will not recognise that the First Nations defended their land and never ceded their sovereignty. And in that process, they were brutally massacred. There was genocide. So I was I was helping stick um, the signs together yesterday and reading them. There was one location where nearly 300 women and children were forced to jump to their death. There was another location where 400 people were massacred at a butcher tree. They thought they were preparing for war, but it was a coming-of-age ceremony, a corroboree, and they killed 13-year-old boys. Um, these things went on over and over again. There are hundreds of these signs. So this is our attempt to call on the Australian government and the War Memorial to recognise that the First Nations resisted, that they had warriors that died um, fighting for their land. And it was the first war. The first war was not Gallipoli. The really? first war was the frontier wars. Yeah, and these people are heroes, freedom fighters. And I think it's so yeah. important that we recognise this, especially with the culture war that's being waged by this conservative government and all the filth that... Abbott comes out with, you know, this was, oh, it's amazing that this was just bushland. What rubbish. Yes, yeah, complete rubbish. And if you if you read these signs, which I will try and, um, and he posts some photos today of as many of those signs as I can, uh, it's just heartbreaking. And every year as we walk up, the people watching cheer us and clap, and then they the police stop us. And even the people that are there just for the event were asking last year, why we want these people to go through? Why, why won't you let them go through? So this is highly political. And the reason is, once you acknowledge that there was resistance and war and that sovereignty was never ceded and there was genocide, then we as a country need to have the very serious conversation that all the young Aboriginal activists are trying to bring to the table right now across Australia which is, will you acknowledge genocide? Will you acknowledge we need a treaty? Will you acknowledge we need to rewrite the entire constitution, not slap a paragraph in at the beginning? Um, so I think this is a very political um, and cultural, uh, culturally significant event, not just for the First Nations people, but for anyone in Australia that is tired of 
living on the pile of lies and racist policies that this country has been built on. And I actually think it would be very powerful and healing for this country if this was acknowledged and those public discourses were opened up um, with a loving heart and, and, and with true regret about what took place. Um, so it's it's really amazing and it's led by the elders and, uh, you know, we have one elder here who lives up near Pine Gap and he gave a great speech at the US Embassy yesterday about saying, you know, this is, your, this is not your land. This will never be your land. You know, we never ceded it. We fought for it. So um, that's what we're trying to demonstrate to the people that attend and to the authorities that continue to block us. And we're hoping that this year we will go through, that this year something will happen that will make that possible. And we're about to, um going to have to go shortly, we're about to go and have a protection ceremony at the Sacred Fire up here before we head over to get ready for the march. Thank you very much for taking time out to uh, tell us about what's going on there, Sam. And, uh, we, yes, we'll, we'll, um, we'll be thinking of you. Best of luck to you. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having me. Bye. Bye.
fixed address we have survived and uh, as we were saying uh, Kim uh, the uh, it chokes you up you know to the whole idea that you go that uh, Aboriginal elder can go to the American embassy and not be allowed apparently to stand on the grass because it belongs to Americans it just shows you how absolutely rubbish the idea of nationalism is they can just you know as you're saying plant a flag anywhere and declare that it's part of a country mm. when Borders don't matter then, do they? Well, it's it's always fascinating to remember that in the uh, what is uh, the dim, dim distant past that uh, the uh, Spanish and the uh, I think it was the Portuguese king sat down and said, "This is your half of the world, and this is my part." Huh? <laughs> it's, and we're all playing it out ever since. Yes, <laughs> right, right is might. That, uh, might is right. That's the. It's the, basically that's the principle of the world that we live in at the moment. It would appear, mm. and as you not, uh, nicely pointed out, that uh, not only is there this deafening, deafening silence, and that was the name of the um, the film that I was trying to remember by uh, Doctor Bottoms. Uh, it's called Conspiracy of Silence, and it's about the Queensland frontier killing times by. Dr. Tim Bottoms. It's a 30-minute documentary, which I'm sure you can follow up, uh, Conspiracy of Silence. And uh, I was saying that I was brought up in a country town in uh, Victoria, and I always wondered about the deafening silence and uh, did study into it in my later age. And and it struck me that the silence is all about guilt. It's a huge amount of guilt. And you pointed out quite specifically that... Well, the fact that if they acknowledge this, they would have to acknowledge that the dispossession and genocide is not in the past. It is happening right now. It's never stopped. No, never stopped. And we should remind people that uh, May the 1st, outside uh, the Town Hall in Melbourne, there's going to be another uh, rallying around uh, to uh, call for the stopping of uh, di- further disposition, uh, disposition of uh, p- Aboriginal people from homelands in Western Australia. I noticed that the South Australians are trying very hard to uh, circumnavigate this uh, um, ruling by the federal government because it's a federal government attack on uh, the uh, homeland communities because they're removing um, funding and uh, the uh, the government of Western Australia, for example, which doesn't have a leg to stand on, uh, being pulling out the uh, guts of the country uh, with the iron ore and mm. then all of a sudden can't afford you know a million dollars to uh, maintain the infrastructure of a homeland. It's absolutely ridiculous. And also I think the West Australian government fairly recently allowed for potential uranium mining, yeah, well, which, is what, which is what they want. Yeah, no witnesses. 
No witnesses. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim, and we're coming to the end of the show. We should remind you that uh, this week, this week's show featured uh, uh, Dr. Robert Bollard, who also has written a book which would be worth going to get because it's about the shadow of uh, Gallipoli, which is the untold story of. Uh, uh, Australia in World War One. It is uh, published by New South Publishing, so that's where you can um, get that from. We uh, spoke. To, we had uh, rank and file that uh, was telling you about the um, commemoration on Tuesday uh, around. Uh, it's at uh, the eight hour. Um, Day monument near Trades Hall to honour the dead of the working class, mm. people who have died uh, at uh, at work. And uh, quite interesting that uh, something to uh, remember, for example, that uh, in Qatar, for example, uh, where uh, it's illegal to have a union, uh, they're building the infrastructure for, I think it's the 2023, uh, 2023 World Cup that uh, already 900 Nepalese uh, workers have died on site there because they don't have such uh, things, sophisticated things as health and safety. And it's projected that at least 4,000 people will die before that project's completed. Now, uh, this is a Mass crime. slaughter. Yeah, it's a crime. Anyway, we're going out now and... Uh, Asia-Pacific currency is coming up. And I thought I'd go out with uh, something that uh, is uh, people will remember. It's, um, let's see if I can find it. It's actually, I was only 19 by Red Gum. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.